Welcome to the March 23rd, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, in sub-Saharan Africa, treatment of sickle cell anemia with hydroxyurea is associated with a lower incidence of malaria. But why? New research suggests mild myelosuppression associated with hydroxyurea treatment may actually have a salutary effect. Up next, a potential new treatment approach in lower GI acute GVHD. Adding an interleukin-22 therapy to corticosteroid treatment was well-tolerated with a high rate of response in this very challenging patient population. Finally, common AML driver mutations, such as FLT3-ITD or internal tandem duplications, orchestrate distinct transcriptional and epigenetic programs based on different genetic contexts. In the context of a common pediatric AML mutation, FLT3-ITD selectively activated type 1 interferon signaling, suggesting a distinct therapeutic vulnerability. Our first research article is Hydroxyurea Treatment is Associated with Lower Malaria Incidence in Children with Sickle Cell Anemia, or SCA, in Sub-Saharan Africa. The first author is Peter Olupat Olupat of Mbale Clinical Research Institute in Mbale, Uganda. Malaria is a major cause of morbidity and mortality among children in sub-Saharan Africa, where the infection is endemic. In some areas, use of insecticides, bed nets, chemoprophylaxis, and vaccination have lowered disease burden, but overall rates of illness and death remain unacceptably high. The problem is compounded by SCA. Two-thirds of babies born with SCA worldwide are in sub-Saharan Africa. Incidence of malaria is not higher in these children. However, risk of death due to malaria is higher, due to underlying anemia and poor splenic function. Hydroxyurea is often the treatment for SCA in sub-Saharan Africa. Where health resources are scarce, hydroxyurea remains the most affordable and feasible option. Recently, some intriguing and unexpected findings emerged in hydroxyurea trials. Namely, hydroxyurea was linked to lower rates of malaria. In no harm, a double-blind, placebo-controlled study in Uganda, malaria incidence was 30% lower in hydroxyurea-treated patients, but the difference was not statistically significant in this 200-patient study. Then came REACH, a phase 1-2 multicenter study of hydroxyurea in more than 600 children with SCA in four African countries, Kenya, Uganda, Angola, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. In previously published results of REACH, malaria infections were reduced by about 50%, with an incidence rate ratio of 0.49, a 95% confidence interval of 0.37 to 0.66, and a p-value less than 0.001. Reduced malaria rates were more pronounced after achieving the maximum tolerated dose, or MTD, of hydroxyurea, and they were sustained over time. So what factors might account for this intriguing and unexpected linkage? Investigators have conducted a longitudinal analysis of documented malaria events to date in the REACH study cohort. The children in REACH were between 1 and 10 years of age at enrollment. Hydroxyurea was started at 15 to 20 milligrams per kilograms per day for six months, with subsequent escalation to the MTD. 86% of patients achieved the MTD, defined as mild myelosuppression with an absolute neutrophil count, ANC, of 2.0 to 4.0 times 10 to the 9th per liter. 
A total of 717 clinical malaria infections were documented over the course of nearly eight years. This included 336 children with at least one infection. There were seven deaths from malaria over the treatment period, representing 1.2% of study participants. The primary analysis in this longitudinal study included 346 confirmed malaria infections, more than half confirmed by blood smear or rapid testing. In univariate analyses, there were significant associations between risk of malaria and higher ANC, 1 to 4 centimeters palpable spleen, lower hemoglobin, 2-gene deletion alpha thalassemia, and achieving MTD. In a multivariable regression model incorporating fetal hemoglobin, the only two variables that remained significant for higher risk of malaria were higher ANC, with a hazard ratio of 1.37, and splenomegaly, with a hazard ratio of 2.01. The greatest decrease in malaria risk was seen with lower ANC values, and there was a sharp decrease in risk at an ANC below 3.0 times 10 to the 9th per liter. This observation is relevant to hydroxyurea treatment. Escalation to the MTD is intended to cause mild myelosuppression, with ANCs of 1.0 to 3.0 times 10 to the 9th per liter, considered optimal. In a commentary, Isaac Odami of the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, said this study provides evidence that in hydroxyurea-treated children with SCA, low ANC values are associated with lower malaria incidence. Conversely, palpable splenomegaly of 1 to 4 centimeters is associated with higher malaria risk as compared to non-palpable spleen status. In this open-label trial, authors cannot fully exclude longitudinal or reporting bias. Nevertheless, the findings are likely accurate, Odame said, on the backdrop of findings from the double-blind, placebo-controlled, no-harm trial. In no-harm, the reduction in malaria infections for hydroxyurea versus placebo was based on about 100 patient years arm at a single site, with a low baseline rate of malaria infection. By contrast, the multicenter REACH study had more than 3,300 patient years of hydroxyurea treatment, with a high baseline infection rate. But how exactly might ANC levels modify malaria risk? Low ANC values achieved by reaching the MTD may directly decrease malaria risk through reduced adhesion, inflammation, and endothelial activation. Alternatively, higher doses of hydroxyurea which induce lower ANC may have direct anti-malarial benefits. In mice, hydroxyurea has been shown to inhibit growth of P. falciparum and prevent cerebral malaria related to P. burgi. The association between palpable spleen and higher risk of malaria is less well understood, but it is postulated that treatment with hydroxyurea may reduce sickling in the spleen and restore its anti-malarial function. These findings, Odame concludes in his commentary, together with the proven benefits of hydroxyurea in SCA, should spark strategies to improve access to the treatment in sub-Saharan Africa, where the disease burden is the greatest. The next research article is entitled, A Phase II Study of Interleukin-22 and Systemic Corticosteroids as Initial Treatment for Acute GVHD of the Lower GI Tract. The first author is Doris M. Ponce of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York City. Acute GVHD is a major complication of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, and acute GVHD of the lower GI tract is particularly concerning due to increased risk of transplant-related mortality. Systemic corticosteroids are standard initial therapy for acute GVHD, yet responses are seen in only about half of cases. New strategies are urgently needed, and preferably ones that are steroid-sparing. 
This leads us to the current study of a novel recombinant IL-22 molecule called F652 as treatment for acute GVHD of the lower GI tract. IL-22 is a non-immunosuppressive, tissue-protective cytokine. In preclinical studies, IL-22 promoted mucosal healing and improved intestinal barrier function. IL-22 deficiency leads to increased GI pathology, loss of epithelial integrity, and GVHD-related mortality in experimental models. In vivo, exogenous IL-22 reduces GI acute GVHD pathology and improves survival. But IL-22 has a half-life less than two hours, which makes it challenging to develop clinical applications. By contrast, F652 is a recombinant human IL-22 dimer with a half-life of about 40 to 200 hours, depending on dose, in healthy human subjects. The present open-label multicenter phase 2 study included adults with newly diagnosed stage 1 to 4 acute GVHD of the lower GI tract. They received up to four weekly doses of intravenous F652 along with corticosteroids. The median age of transplantation was 55 years, and most common malignant diagnoses were acute leukemia and myelodysplastic syndrome. 19 out of 27 patients, or 70%, met the primary endpoint of response at day 28, including 13 complete responses. Responders were seen across the spectrum of severity, including 4 patients with stage 3 disease and 3 patients with stage 4 disease. By day 56, 16 of the patients, or about 59%, remained in response. One-year overall survival was 63%, and one-year progression-free survival was 52%. IL-22 induces production of molecules, including Reg family proteins, that help promote gut barrier protection against pathogens. In responders, circulating Reg3-alpha concentrations were significantly higher after treatment than they were at baseline. Study patients had evidence of microbiome dysbiosis and enteric flora before treatment. Post-treatment analysis demonstrated distinct changes in microbial composition in patients who received F652 plus corticosteroids. For comparison, investigators also looked at enteric flora in a cohort of 27 adult patients with lower GI acute GVHD who did not receive F652. Those patients also had evidence of dysbiosis, but following steroid treatment alone, there were no substantial differences in microbial composition or diversity. F652 treatment was well tolerated. There were no early treatment discontinuations or reduced doses due to toxicity. The most common adverse events were mostly grade 1 to 2 cytopenias and electrolyte abnormalities. The most common attributable side effects were dry skin and xerophthalmia, which were also observed in studies of F652 in healthy volunteers. In a commentary, Mohamed Modi and Florent Millard of Sorbonne University in Paris, France, said these findings position IL-22 as a new beacon in acute GVHD. There was no dose-limiting toxicity for F652, and there was a suggestion that higher doses of treatment may translate into improved response rates. F652 was safe, with the most common side effects attributable to treatment being dry skin and xerophthalmia. And despite previous research indicating that IL-22 might exacerbate GI tract inflammation and contribute to severity of acute GVHD, the present study documented no increases in levels of inflammatory cytokines. Composition of fecal microbiota in responders was distinctly altered, suggesting that F652 may help correct dysbiosis in the setting of acute GI GVHD. And lastly, a 70% response rate was felt to be highly encouraging in patients with acute GI GVHD, a group that is prone to treatment failure.
This compares favorably to a response rate of 74% among patients with acute GVHD in the randomized Phase 3 Gravitas 301 study, who received idacitinib, a selective JAK1 inhibitor, plus corticosteroids, in which only 42% of the enrolled patients had lower GI acute GVHD. Altogether, the commentary authors suggest that a randomized Phase 3 trial of F652 is warranted, they say that within the next decade, it's possible that F652 could be a key player in combination with new approaches to gut microbiota manipulation, such as fecal microbiota transplantation. Finally, let's turn to a research article titled FLT3ITD Drives Context-Specific Changes in Cell Identity and Variable Interferon Dependence During AML Initiation by Yan'an Lee and co-authors in the Departments of Pediatrics and Genetics at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. We know FLT3ITD is a common mutation in both adult and pediatric AML. But by itself, FLT3ITD is insufficient to actually cause AML. Instead, FLT3ITD cooperates with other mutations to drive pathogenesis of the disease. For example, when FLT3ITD is partnered with mutations in TET2, NPM1, or RUNX1, changes occur in expression of genes and organization of the epigenome that wouldn't be seen with those mutations in isolation. Previous studies found overlapping cooperative target gene profiles for FLT3ITD plus mutations in TET2, NPM1, or RUNX1, suggesting that while the mutation pairs are different, they may ultimately engage similar processes or pathways leading to AML. To date, however, most of the work in this area has been on mutations that occur more frequently in adult AML. The partner mutations occurring with FLT3ITD frequently differ between pediatric and adult AML and it remains unclear whether FLT3ITD might induce distinct transcriptional programs or therapeutic vulnerabilities within the context of pediatric or adult initiating mutations. The current study helps address this research gap. Lee and co-investigators sought to determine whether FLT3ITD induces different transcriptional programs when paired with pediatric initiating mutations versus adult initiating mutations, and whether unique therapeutic vulnerabilities may be identified as a consequence. To do this, they compared AML evolution in mice that carried FLT3ITD and NUP98 HOXD13, also called NHD13, a pairing commonly found in pediatric AML, to mice with FLT3ITD and RUNX1 deletion, commonly found in adult AML. Through use of bulk and single-cell sequencing techniques, investigators found that when paired with NHD13, FLT3ITD activated different target genes and enhancers than when paired with RUNX1 mutations. This translated into different interactions between FLT3ITD and the cooperating mutations. FLT3ITD with RUNX1 mutation resulted in abnormal expression of myeloid progenitors. By contrast, FLT3ITD with NHD13 was associated with emergence of a pre-AML population not resembling normal hematopoietic progenitors. Interestingly, FLT3ITD with NHD13 caused a robust type 1 interferon response, whereas FLT3ITD with RUNX1 mutant progenitors did not. Further studies revealed that FLT3ITD and NHD13 selectively hijacked type 1 interferon signaling, which drove expansion of the pre-AML population. Through deletion of interferon alpha and beta receptor subunit 1, which enables type 1 interferon receptor activity, 
NHD13-dependent pre-AML cells were depleted, and expression of genes known to drive AML self renewal were reduced. By blocking interferon signaling, AML initiation was delayed and survival was extended. Taken together, these findings suggest that mechanisms of transformation associated with common AML driver mutations, such as FLT3ITD, may depend on the genetic context. When FLT3ITD paired with the pediatric predominant NUP98 fusion, the mechanisms of transformation were distinct from when it paired with the adult predominant mutations. This research also has potential therapeutic implications. It identified a type 1 interferon sensitivity in NUP98 translocated AML that may be actionable therapeutically. Specifically, IFN1 signaling may be targetable with IFNAR12 blocking antibodies as well as ducravacitinib, a TIC2 inhibitor. In a commentary, Sarah E. Meyer of Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia said this research demonstrates that when it comes to FLT3ITD, context is key. Meyer writes that the researchers have taken an entirely new approach to elucidating FLT3ITD biology by contrasting its role in pediatric and adult AML. The novel insights described in the research article show that FLT3ITD is more dynamic than previously appreciated. Moving forward, Meyer said, our conception of the roles of FLT3ITD needs to be broadened to incorporate mutational and developmental contexts. In particular, more research is needed to determine whether type 1 interferon signaling can be exploited as a therapeutic strategy for the treatment of pediatric FLT3ITD mutant AML. The discovery that FLT3ITD signaling is dynamic, with dependencies that include age, co-mutation, and cell type, is an important lesson. The responsiveness of AML to tyrosine kinase inhibitors and emerging therapies may need to be reconsidered in terms of the FLT3ITD mutant subtype. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.